Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Clover gives you the power to run a smarter, faster restaurant. See everything in real time with the kitchen display system. Streamline takeout and delivery with online ordering. With the right tech, quick service is getting even quicker. Clover, accept payments, run your business, and sell more. For a limited time only, visit Clover.com to get a $450 statement credit on qualified hardware purchases. That's www.clover.com. When I was a little kid... My whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country— the truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I hate it when, like, things bump into microphones and they make that sound. Uh-huh. Like, bugs me. Get that sound out of here. I'm grumpy. I'm grumpy because I'm sick. That's what it is. You sound not so bad, though, I think. You, That's good. You, you, you I'm sound better. You sound much better than you sounded yesterday. Yeah. Nate, I want to ask you a question. Shoot. How do you keep up with the news? Um, well, I used to use Twitter, but I don't use Twitter as much. All the people I followed are gone. Mm. I also use uh, New York Times app. I listen to NPR all the time. And then just talking with friends, that kind of stuff. Okay, but what about climate news? I mean, there's definitely an urgency to climate news. But at the same time, I know a lot of people would rather just look away because it just comes with so much dread and anxiety, right? Yeah. I don't have dread or anxiety when I look at climate change news. I don't feel that. But I know a lot of other people do. Yeah. I know this because there is actually internal data with the NPR One app. There's data that shows one of the most skipped genres of story is climate change news. Huh. Maybe this is an obvious question, but why do you think that is? I think people skip climate news because it's scary. Uh, it's predictable. It's not really that surprising. I mean, like, new study shows Arctic is warming. Big fire in California, probably spurred by climate change. Like, these are pretty predictable stories. Okay, here's the deal. I think we need to do a roundup of climate news that is not predictable. Like, Mm -hmm. let's talk about climate news that's surprising. Well, I really appreciate it when there's, like, a real WTF element to any story. WTF. All right. Can I tell you a few WTF climate news that's happening right now? I'm ready. Yeah. Let me hear them. Okay. So scientists with the U.S. Department of Energy just had a breakthrough in nuclear fusion. Mm -hmm. They basically shot hundreds of lasers at a tiny pellet of hydrogen fuel. And fusion is what happens in the sun. So experts say it could one day provide unlimited renewable energy. That's pretty cool. It's not WTF, but it's pretty cool. 
No? No, I don't mind. Like, what the? You're just, what the? No, no F? Just WT? Try again. All right. Nuclear fusion doesn't do it for me. Okay, how about this interesting fact? So, you know that rail strike that happened recently? Yes. So for those who don't know, the one where workers were demanding paid sick time, but ultimately like Joe Biden and Congress like forced them to accept this contract without paid sick leave. Yeah. Um, well, did you know that a surprising player in that labor dispute were fossil fuel companies? They were lobbying on the side of the rail companies. Hmm. So apparently uh, nearly 70 percent of the nation's coal is transported by rail. Mm-hmm. It just goes to show that Fossil fuels are really like entangled with pretty much everything. And, you know, research from 2019 showed that the four largest rail companies in the U.S., they Mm -hmm. poured millions of dollars into denying climate science and opposing climate policy. That's a WTF one. Yeah. I like that one. That one's a winner. (laughs) Ding, 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 ding. Let me give you one last piece of news. Uh, The headline for this one reads, Why Knowing Your Neighbors Could Save You in the Next Climate Disaster. Researchers at Tufts University found in a new research study that the more connected people were with neighbors, the more likely they were to know about different resources and services that are offered during extreme weather. I'm almost wondering whether WTF, maybe we're throwing a little bit more, more weight on WTF than we should be for this. Maybe we're, we're trying to find what yeah. shakes us out of the malaise of, of climate change news, the everyday humdrum of climate change news. Yeah, I like that. Okay. All right, let's do that. Shaking out the humdrum. That's what we can call it. (laughs) As Outside In, I'm Nate Hedgie, here with producer Felix Poon, and today we are looking at some of the most interesting, surprising, not humdrum, maybe WTF climate news stories out there. Yeah. So I've lined up a handful of journalists for you to talk to to tell us these stories. We'll hear about the return of the so-called overpopulation debate. We're going to talk about climate reparations. And we're talking about why we're demolishing hydropower dams when we need all the renewable energy that we can get. Now, those, I think, are some interesting stories. I'm excited to hear them. Damn right they are. So you better stick around. All right, so I want to kick things off with a little bit of trivia for you, Felix. Yeah. Do you know how many people are born every single day on Earth? On Earth, like the whole wide world, planet Earth. Yep. Every day. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) I'm stalling here, if you can't tell. (laughs) Um, I feel like 100,000. Close-ish. 200,000. 360 thousand people born every single day that's the size of cleveland ohio a new cleveland every day and all those people are adding up so back in november the world passed a big milestone there are now eight billion human beings roaming around the planet lots of people are writing think pieces on the subject of overpopulation yeah one of the stories that came out was from new york times climate reporter cara buckley She profiled a guy who had something called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. Wait, the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement? Oh, yeah. Voluntary is a very important part of that title. I mean, depending on how you hear it, it either sounds like a joke or it sounds like very, very ominous. Yeah, definitely. But anyways, it I mean, like, it is a controversial topic. And before I was host, Outside In actually did a big two-part 
episode on how fears and predictions about overpopulation have been A, wrong, and B, tangled up with a lot of racist rhetoric and stuff about eugenics. But 8 billion people on the planet is a big milestone. And so we called up Cara Buckley to talk about her piece and the thorny subject of overpopulation. Cara, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. 8 billion human beings on the planet. Like, why does that milestone matter? And what does it mean? It matters because, look, the, our human population in the last 50 years has doubled. Uh, and it's come at huge, huge costs to the rest of the living world. You know, wildlife populations have plummeted 70%. Um, in... In the environmental movement, population used to be of great concern. I mean, even David Attenborough told the BBC, you know, that he could think of few problems that wouldn't be solved if there were less people. But it's really become such a hot potato to even talk about in the climate movement, whether Mm -hmm. even the world is, quote unquote, overpopulated because there has been such problematic associations with population policies before Mm -hmm. So that's why, I mean, that's, those are just some of the reasons why this is a, a big deal. So you profiled a guy named Les Knight recently. What, what, what's his story? Les Knight, yes. He's the most chill cultural flamethrower I've ever met, <laughs> although I don't know how many people fall into that category. He is somebody who, in the 1970s, he became interested in deep ecology, and he became deeply convinced that one of the best things people could do to help the earth Mm. is to not have children. So he started something that in the 1980s he christened the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. And he's been espousing these beliefs for 50 years. Um, Yeah, and he believes that everyone should be able to decide whether or not to have children, uh, have complete access to birth control, have complete access to abortion, but with the underlying belief that there are too many people and that people are bad for the environment. Does he expect people to take him seriously about this? I would say yes and no. I saw Les as kind of a bit of a court jester. I mean, the name Voluntary Human Extinction Movement is obviously very inflammatory, but once people react to the shock of that. And not everybody, by the way, reacts in shock to that. You know, younger people, people of reproductive age today are increasingly saying they're very concerned Mm. about the climate. It's making them question whether or not to have children. Um, But once people who do react in shock to it, sort of might, who engage with the ideas, they might find that he actually does expect them to take this very seriously. So it's sort of an audacious way of maybe gaining attention. And then he sort of goes off in another strain. It's called antinatalism, Mm -hmm. which is another, you know, controversial philosophy. But it basically holds that human life is uh, suffering. It's really, it's really hard to be a human. So it's ethical not to create more humans. But his main thrust is uh, ecology and concerns about the environment. A bulk of the population growth uh, is happening in countries with very low carbon emissions. You know, places with the highest emissions, the U.S., European Union, China, have very low birth rates. So doesn't it, it, it strikes me that the problem is consumption, not necessarily population, right? Well, 
isn't it both? Doesn't every human need to consume? You know, the guy who's Dennis Hayes, who started Earth Day, he sort of described a green silence around the issue of population. He said, to be American is to be wasteful. So more people are, more people want more stuff. So it's both, you know, and I think that one of the things that's very touchy around this is, you know, um, people in developing countries, uh, BIPOC populations have have borne the brunt often of efforts towards population control and forced sterilization. So it's mm -hmm. a, it can be really, really thorny. Um, but Project Drawdown lists educating girls as one of, of you know, the most beneficial, maybe helpful, potent climate solutions because mm -hmm. if, if girls are educated, if they're given access to sexual health education and contraception, they chances are they'll have fewer children and fewer children means less less demands on the earth and so you know underneath the swirling controversy there's a consensus that giving people total control over their reproductive rights having total access to birth control to you know, different kinds of contraception, to abortion decisions, is something that everyone sort of seems to agree on is a climate solution. Carl, this has been such a great conversation. Thanks for joining us. Very happy to be here. So there were a lot of interesting pieces that came out at about the same time Kara's piece did. There's one on Vox that argued what we really should be worrying about is underpopulation, especially in places with birth rates that are too low to keep the economy growing. And then there was the Washington Post article about the climate footprint of having kids, and it questions whether that's really as bad as we think it is. Yeah, it's kind of complicated to try and crunch the numbers on that. And if you want to learn more about the subject, definitely listen back to our two-part episode it explains why overpopulation is such a third rail in environmental circles and why that's also probably kind of a good thing. We'll put links to all that stuff in the show notes and on the website. And if you've got a climate story that you've been following or thinking about lately, please let us know. Why does it interest you? Why is it important? Email us at outsidein at nhpr.org or you can tag us on Twitter or Instagram. We're at Outside In Radio. Anyways, we'll be right back after this break. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug. But I ended up connecting to the world around me. A world where each sunset was painted where I felt adventures pulse with every step, and where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota, so little time. 
Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today hey you're listening to outside in i'm nate hedgy here today with producer felix poon so nate you know what reparations are right yes it's essentially giving compensation could be like money or land to folks who suffered abuse or injury like i know it's a hot topic in congress in recent years about whether to give reparations to the descendants of enslaved people here in the u.s right but have you ever heard of climate reparations I've heard of it, but I honestly don't really know that much about it. So it's a thing that gained huge traction recently. Back in November, countries from around the world got together to take stock of whether we're meeting our climate goals. Right, COP27. Right, and this time it was held in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And historically, it's been really hard to get all these countries to agree on anything around climate, right? Yeah. But in the 11th hour, they struck a deal on climate reparations. To help us understand what that actually means, we brought in Navina Sadasivam. She's a staff writer at Grist who covered COP27. Navina, thank you for chatting with us. Thanks for having me, Nate. So help us understand what are climate reparations and why are some nations calling for them? Yeah, if you look at the carbon dioxide emissions between 1850 and 2015, 80% of this, those emissions are coming from the G7 countries, which include the U.S. And the U.S. alone is responsible for something like a quarter of those emissions. Mm -hmm. But the worst effects of climate change are being felt by the developing world. So when you think about the effects of climate change, think about the, the hurricanes that are getting more intense, more frequent. Think about the drought that is lasting longer these days, um, mm -hmm. the intense rainfall. So the developing world needs resources to adapt to all of these different sort of changes that we're seeing and to address them, right? And so the idea is that under the United Nations, the de developing world has been calling for a fund that primarily developed countries would pay into this fund and developing countries would be able to draw out from this fund. And, and what changed that got developed countries to take these calls seriously? Yeah, so this, this has been coming for three decades. It started in 1991 when the small island nation of Vanuatu, uh, which is in the Pacific, that first called for loss and damage and had suggested an insurance scheme to help them deal with sea level rise. Uh, but really, I would say it's taken off in the last decade or so. It became the third pillar of the Paris Agreement in 2015. And last year at COP26 in Glasgow, there was a big push to get loss and damage recognized, to get a fund for loss and damage established. Mm -hmm. Another thing that happened is the terrible floods in Pakistan over the summer, which left a third of the country underwater. That's just mm -hmm. unfathomable. And I think it got a lot of media attention rightly. And there was uh, a lot of calls for loss and damage that were tied to those um, to the, the flooding event. Yeah. And so that also gave it some momentum. And coincidentally, the head of the G77 negotiating bloc this year is Pakistan. Mm -hmm. So they had all this moral urgency, you know, going into these uh, talks. 
Um, and that that is basically, you know, sort of where our story starts and sort of leads into COP27 uh, this year. And if my memory serves me correctly, it was a little bit of a surprise that these developed nations agreed to climate reparations during COP27. So like, how did yeah, that Yeah, absolutely. If you had asked me just two months ago whether I thought this was probable or even possible, I would have said, no, it doesn't seem probable. And it seems like a bit of a long shot. Yeah. And so there was a lot of pushback the first week. And uh, in the second week, you saw a lot of attempts to break up the unity that existed between developing countries. So on the one hand, you have G7 countries, which are the developed countries. And then on the other hand, most of the developing countries are represented by the G77 and China. And they mm-hmm. kind of act together as one sort of negotiating block. And so those, those are the two sort of competing forces, you could say. One of the issues that was repeatedly brought up by developed countries is they were saying, we need to bring in countries, let's say like China. Right. Why isn't China paying into it? Why aren't Gulf countries like Saudi Arabia or Qatar paying into it, right? And so they were trying to expand that donor base, which would then essentially break up the unity that you had within the developing countries. But I think one real turning point came about, you know, in the last two days of the conference, we're down to the wire, you know, there's not a whole lot of progress happening. The U.S. had been a big obstructor, had been trying to block progress on loss and damage for years, and the U.S. and EU worked kind of hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of the night, the European Union's chief negotiator, Franz Timmermans, you know, takes the mic and says, you know, as a compromise, we will agree to a loss and damage fund uh, as long as it expands the donor base. Yeah. And so that was kind of a defining moment of COP27, I think, is that middle of the night uh, discussion that was taking place and the EU chief stepping forward and the U.S. became isolated. And then the U.S. essentially kind of came on board saying, as a compromise, we are willing to commit to a loss and damage fund. So what is next now that they've agreed to putting money into this loss and damage fund? Like what happens next? Yeah, the next step is this transitional committee is going to meet over the next year. They're going to iron out all of the thorny details that they didn't get to at COP27. So this crucial question of who is going to pay into the fund? Also the question of which countries get to draw from it. And so how do you prioritize countries uh, that are least developed and small island nations and so on? So a lot of those details are going to be ironed out in the next year. And to you, kind of looking at this, how this all played out, what's the most surprising thing about what's happened um, in this fight to you? Yeah, I think the most surprising thing is that advocacy and the pressure campaign from the developing world worked. So mm-hmm. I think that's that has been the biggest surprise uh, for me as I followed this over the months. Navina, thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks for having me. So, Nate, a question. Mm-hmm. When you hear the words renewable energy, yeah. what sources do you think of first? Wind and solar, hands down, the dynamic duo. Oh, yeah, me too. But, you know, what's often left out is the second biggest source of renewable energy in the U.S., hydropower. Damn it. What? You see what I did there? Did you see what I did there, Felix? What did you do? Damn it. What? Damn it. Oh. You get it? <laughs> 
<laughs> That's my pun for the episode. Oh, wow. It's not even that good. Uh, well, anyways. <laughs> so here's the news part. U.S. regulators have approved what's going to be the biggest dam demolition project in the world. Mm-hmm. Four huge dams on the Klamath River in California. Yeah. And so from a climate perspective, you might hear that and think, that can't be good. Less hydropower. But actually, dams have their own environmental problems, like toxic algae blooms, cutting off salmon runs, stuff like that. Here to tell us more about the historic Klamath River dam demolition is Gillian Flaccus. Gillian's a reporter and video journalist for the Associated Press in Oregon. And she wrote about how people from the Yurok and Karuk tribes pushed for this agreement and what it means. Hey, Gillian, thanks for coming to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's just big picture what happened. What, what makes this a big deal? Uh, This is a really big deal because uh, these dams have been on this river uh, in some cases for about a century, um, and they prevent the salmon that are native to the river and are part of the, at the heart of the culture and subsistence of these tribes from Mm -hmm. navigating all the way up to their natal streams. And so bringing these uh, dams down was really critical, I think, to the salmon and also to the tribe, these two tribes. Um, and others in the area uh, to reconnect and reclaim, you know, their ancestral way of life and their ancestral territory. Right. And, you know, with with these these dams coming down, um, obviously dams uh, have been a source of of renewable power for for the West. I mean, like, are people going to be losing power or 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 stuff like that? Or or is this does this hit the energy grid whatsoever? No, I mean, the reality of this dam demolition plan is that Pacific Corps, which operates these four dams, says that the power generated by these dams is less than 2% of its total portfolio. Um, mm-hmm. They've diversified with wind and solar uh, and other sources of clean energy. And so they don't really need these dams anymore. And so for them, this was actually a business decision because the hydroelectric license on these dams has been expired for a while. Mm-hmm. But if they were to apply for a full renewal to get those licenses back, they would have had to do hundreds of millions of dollars of retrofitting and work and repairs on these dams to make them meet current environmental standards. And so for them, um, paying their share of the dam demolition plan is going to wind up being a lot cheaper than doing the retrofits that they would need to make these dams acceptable in the modern era. And also, they don't really lose any um, any energy from their power portfolio or very, very minimal. So it's not a big loss for them. It's not a big loss for them. And they get good public relations. They get to, you know, look good. So Now, how do you actually remove these dams? Like, how long is this going to take and, and what happens when they're gone? As far as the dams themselves, um, they will draw down uh, the water in these reservoirs gradually, very carefully, Um And they will actually, I believe there is some discussion, uh, I don't want to overstate this, but of of temporarily rechanneling the river into a underground tunnel that was constructed back when the dams were built in the first place, Mm -hmm. um, and then bringing the river back into its original channel after this is done. Um, There's a lot of sediment and silt behind those dams that will, you know, some of it will go down the river when those dams come down. And so there's going to be a period of time where the river will actually be a little worse off and it'll be siltier and sludgier and such like that. But eventually, within five years, we know from looking at other dam removals, um, the river should be even healthier than it is now. Mm -hmm. 
going back to the salmon, you know, just how important are salmon to the Yurok and, and Karuk? I mean, what what do salmon mean to those two tribes? Both tribes believe that they were their purpose on this earth is to watch out for the for the salmon, you know, to care mm-hmm. for the salmon. I, I you'd have to ask a, a tribal member to to you know, be more deeply specific about that, but they speak passionately about the salmon and it really is the entire community revolves around salmon and the salmon fishing season and the, and, and the stories and the traditions. And one thing that struck me is like, we've seen some other attempts to assert tribal sovereignty fail in this country, like most notably probably Keystone XL, the Keystone XL pipeline protests in in 2016. Like how did these two tribes accomplish this? Uh, well, it, it wasn't just the tribes. I mean, it was obviously a coalition of parties, but they were definitely a a driver of this um, this fight. And this dates back about twenty twenty years or so, um, when there was a salmon kill after a particularly bad summer. And starting at that point, um, there there started to be real activism around this issue, and the activism focused more around tribal sovereignty. Um, environmental issues, but as well as tribal sovereignty. And it's been a very, very long road. There have been multiple twists and turns. And the deal that ultimately resulted in these dams uh, coming down or or soon to come down uh, was on a razor-thin edge um, at several times during the process. And are you seeing similar efforts to remove dams like this across the country? Yes, um, definitely. Uh, there's a, a move, a, a real push in the United States to remove dams. Uh, and the largest dam removal to date was on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. Uh, that was 10 years ago. And so this one would surpass that. And that one uh, was incredibly successful. And and that river called the Elwha River has come back to life mm-hmm in ways that even scientists uh, did, could not have predicted. But yes, uh, nationwide, um, there's a lot of small, like very small dams, very old dams that are mm-hmm. coming down for the same reasons. They need to renew their hydroelectric licenses. It's not really worth it. And and it's better for the rivers. Well, Gillian, this has been wonderful. Thanks so much for talking with us. Sure, no problem. All right, so that's yeah, so that's our show. All right, um, I feel a little bit more informed now, and I think you found some some good surprising ones. I like that. I like this segment. Yeah, but uh, what do our listeners think? So were these surprising to you? Was there a WTF element to them? Did you want to skip any of these stories? If they've made it this far already, Felix, it's got to be saying something. They're already they're still listening. But anyways, uh. Let us know if you have any thoughts or reactions to today's stories or suggestions for ones that we should cover. Our email, again, is outsidein at nhpr.org. But yeah, let us know. Uh, what kind of stories do you want us to cover? Hopeful stories, surprising stories? Send us an email at outsidein at nhpr.org. Or you can hit us up on social media. We are at Outside In Radio. This episode of Outside In was produced by Felix Poon. It was edited by Taylor Quimby with additional editing help from me, Nate Hedgie, Justine Paradise, and Jessica Hunt. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music in this episode was from Blue Dot Sessions, Jari, and Blackout Memories. Our theme music, as always, is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.
Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.